Uh, well, we better pray. Let's do that. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study together. We thank you that uh, you are here with us, and we need very, very much, God, for you to give us understanding, for you to fill us with uh, your spirit and guide us in our pursuit of understanding this book. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're studying Revelation, and if you've got a, a Bible, you can open it. You know, you know what a Bible is. You know what a book is anymore. Uh, you can open it, and you can turn to the last book of the New Testament, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 1 together, uh, or you can uh, turn on your phones and we'll think you're reading the Bible with us. Uh, but I, as you do that, I've got a question for you, and here's the question. Are we living today in the last days? Would you say yes or would you say no? Are we living in the last days? Uh, it might surprise you, maybe not, maybe you know this already, but in Acts chapter 2, uh, there is a, that passage that tells us we are, in fact, clearly living in the last days and have been ever since the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. It's what we refer to as the day of Pentecost. Uh, that, of course, was over 2,000 years ago. And so one might ask, well, how could then and now both be the last days. Well, let me give you a definition that I hope will help you understand. The term the last days is more of a really a theological concept referring to God uh, bringing his plan of redemption. In other words, his judgment, his salvation, uh, his purposes, his kingdom, bringing those things to a conclusion, to completion, than it is an indication of how many days or minutes are left before Jesus returns. It's a theological concept, this idea of the last days. It sort of works like this. How many of you have somebody in your home that uh, watches a lot of football? Anybody? Okay. Uh, and have you ever found that when you ask that person how much time is left in the game and they say two minutes, uh, it's like an hour before the game is actually over? Anybody experience that? Yeah. What you learn if you hang around football long enough is that two minutes left in the game does not equal 120 seconds. Uh, from the time of Pentecost on, transition with me here, uh, we have been in this period called the last days. It's the final stages. It's the wrapping up of God's redemptive plan. The last days are when all that needs to be done by God to save a people for himself has been done. Jesus came. Jesus lived a perfect righteous life. Jesus died on a cross to pay for sin. Jesus came back from the dead. Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus poured out his spirit upon the church. And today in the last days, Jesus is actually patiently waiting. He could return at any time. There's nothing remaining for him to accomplish in the way of our redemption or salvation. There's nothing more that he needs to do. So it's in that sense that we are in the last days. And so what we do now in this long period of the last days, what seems long to us is we watch and we pray and we wait. And this is consistent with the commands that Jesus actually gave his disciples. On one occasion, Jesus said, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time, and he's referring to the time of his return, you do not know when that time will come. So be on guard, be alert. Now, 
The question that we would all like to have answered is, how long will the last days last? That's the question we'd like to have answered. And the answer, of course, is we don't know. We just don't. We don't know how long the last days will last. And our job during this time, no matter how long they might last, is to watch and to work and to pray. Not to speculate about days and times and things of that nature. It could be any time. There's nothing else that needs to happen in order for Jesus to return. And not knowing when exactly he will return requires from us something called patient endurance. That's what we are to exercise, patient endurance. And John actually exemplifies this in this book of Revelation. Uh, What I want to do with you now is something you're not supposed to do ever, you know, when you're speaking to a group of people, and that's read a long passage of Scripture. But I want to read 16 verses to you. And the reason I want to do this is I want us to listen as best we can and to get the overall picture of the text that we're going to study. And I want you to take this in sort of like a a picture unfolding, right, as I read. And uh, you can follow along on the screen or your phone or your Bible if you actually have one. And uh, here we go. This is an English Standard Version, uh, part of John's Revelation, chapter 1, starting at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. (coughs) Excuse me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, mean one that looked like a human being, one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. 
I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's the word of God. Friends, we've just read a description of one of the greatest encounters with God that a human being ever lived to tell about. And I want to look at some of the details of John's vision in a moment, but before we do that, I want to just kind of examine John's specific predicament. John is that disciple, you remember, uh, who in describing himself, he said he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the way John had related to Jesus when Jesus was here on earth. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he saw Jesus do miracles. He was in the boat when Jesus came walking on the water. Uh, He saw Jesus raise the dead, Lazarus, for example. He saw Jesus transfigured on one occasion where Jesus shone brightly like the sun on that occasion. John was there at Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured out upon the church. John had preached in many different places in the name and in the power and with the authority of Jesus Christ. John had been a part of starting churches in places in Asia. He had written a gospel detailing the life of Jesus. And at this time, John is probably about 90 years old. Uh, And where had all of John's following Jesus and preaching in Jesus' name and starting churches, where had all that stuff gotten John? Interesting question. All the things that we take for granted, being able to come together and freely worship in this room, uh, freedom to connect with each other, uh, freedom to preach and serve other people in Jesus' name, all of those kinds of things, things John had done his whole life long, were now denied John. And the point is that on many, many different levels, Patmos was a place of disappointment for John. It was a place of probably unfulfilled expectations. The people he wanted to visit, the people whose lives he had been involved in and other churches and other places, he could now not visit. Patmos was a place where he probably felt alone. He may have been actually abandoned. He might have been there by himself. We're not sure. Interestingly, every one of us winds up on a Patmos sooner or later, do we not? A place of disappointment, a place of unfulfilled expectations, a place that's confusing. Why am I here? That's perhaps lonely as well. Uh, Some of us are in places like that right now because of financial stress or because of sickness we cannot shake or we cannot fix because of divorce, because of relational betrayal. There are all kinds of things that can put us on an island like Patmos. Rome put John on Patmos. And uh, when we're there in a place like Patmos, our usual prayer is, God, get me off of Patmos, right? I don't want to be here. I don't understand why I'm here in the first place. But what we need to observe is that God's plan was not to take John off of Patmos. 
God's plan was actually to reveal himself to John in ways that John had never experienced before. John says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Uh, That's the only mention of this thing of the Lord's day in the Bible. Uh, In the Old Testament, of course, God's people would worship God on the Sabbath, and that was, of course, a Saturday. Uh, But after Jesus' resurrection, the church transitioned on its day of worshiping God from the Sabbath, from Saturday, to the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, which, of course, was Sunday. And it was frequently referred to in this way, the Lord's Day, because it was a day where you gave preference over everything else, you gave preference to worshiping God. Now, it may have been that no one on the island of Patmos knew that it was the Lord's Day except John. John did. John remembered. He says, I heard uh, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And then what follows is Jesus revealing himself to John in all of his heavenly glory. John had not seen Jesus quite like this before. And in that revelation, John discovered that despite his disappointment, despite maybe loneliness that he was feeling, despite confusion, why am I here? How long am I going to be here? Despite the everyday hardships that no doubt confronted John, John was in the process of discovering that Jesus was all he needed. Jesus was more than sufficient for him on the island of Patmos. And if we're honest, very often it's in times of suffering or times of pain or times of confusion or times of hardship on islands like Patmos that we see the power of God displayed like at no other. And so John paints us a picture of an all-sufficient Jesus, and he does this with images. Uh, He's not painting, of course, a physical likeness of Jesus. He's using words to paint a spiritual likeness of Jesus. He's showing us, if you will, who Jesus really is, not who we sometimes make him. Uh, In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, uh, we read this. It says, then John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, he says. In our day, uh, white hair is not so desirable. Uh, It's an indication uh, of the fact that a person is aging. And to many in our day, there's only one thing worse than white hair, and that would be, thanks, that's right, no hair. (laughs) The Bible, thank God, has a different view. (laughs) Places like Proverbs 16 says, gray hair or white hair. White hair is a crown of splendor, something that you earn, something that's attained, it says, by a righteous life. In other words, a life lived in accordance with God's word, a life of wisdom right? Uh, The image of Jesus here is much like an image that occurs back in the Old Testament in Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 7. The ancient of days, this is God the Father, he's called the ancient of days uh, is, is given to us there. And the ancient of days is described as having white woolen hair. It's a symbol for wisdom, wisdom earned. In the sense uh, here, God is eternal. That's why he has the title ancient of days. And so he possesses all wisdom. 
because he has, of course, been righteous throughout all of eternity. And that's the picture here of Jesus. Jesus knows it all, every detail about you and me, every detail about the universe, cells, DNA, you name it. He knows it all. He understands it all. He made it all. Every jot and detail about everything and how everything works. Jesus knows. Jesus is never surprised. He is never confounded. He's never confused. That's part of what Jesus meant when back in verse 8, he actually refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. A little bit like saying I'm the A to Z. In other words, I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I know not just what has happened. I know what's going to come. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. His hair is white like snow, like wool. He's just like the ancient of days, his heavenly father who has perfect wisdom. And John is realizing Jesus knows all about his present circumstances, his present difficulty, knows all about his iffy future, knows all about his immediate concerns, And not only does Jesus know all things and possess all wisdom, that's only part of the image here because Jesus is willing also to share his wisdom and I might add his power with us. The image of Jesus is uh, him standing where? Where did we read? In the midst of the lampstands, the seven lampstands, which are the church. In other words, he's smack dab in the middle of his church. He is with us. He is among us. He is fully present, fully available. He's not far away and unconcerned and disinterested. He's exactly what he said he would be with his disciples one day when he said, I will be with you always, always. This is a picture of that truth. Now, just stop because this is a good exercise. Do you think that this revelation was at all meaningful to John? Absolutely. This is like cool, refreshing water to someone stranded in the middle of a desert. This was a life-changing revelation for John. Do you think that uh, it's relevant to the churches to whom John is writing? Absolutely. They needed to be reminded of these very truths. So question, is this picture of Jesus relevant at all to you. You need to let it be. So do I. It's good to mull these pictures over, understand these images and what they mean, and get a realistic view of who Jesus is. Now, next, John sees Jesus' eyes. Uh, He says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. In other words, intense, piercing, penetrating, illuminating. Jesus' eyes miss absolutely nothing. Have you ever noticed, uh, probably all of us have done this, you've sat around a campfire somewhere outside and the fire's burning. And when you do that and you do that with others, where are your eyes focused? They're always focused on the fire because everything else around you is dark and you can't look at anything but the fire. It's like a magnet. It just draws you in. And even as you have a conversation, perhaps even a quiet one with other people, you're focused on 
the fire. Well, John's eyes are now focused on Jesus' eyes that were like a fire, you see. And here's the other interesting thing. Jesus' eyes miss absolutely nothing because they illuminate just like a fire does. They shed light on something that would otherwise be covered in dark. Jesus sees what's really happening. Jesus sees why we're angry. Jesus sees why we are afraid. Jesus sees why we are defensive. Jesus sees exactly why we lie and cheat and steal and pretend and on and on it goes. But he sees even more than that. He doesn't just see these things through his eyes, this fire. There's actually a purifying, refining aspect to the gaze of Jesus. When we come into the light of Jesus' gaze, there's no use pretending, friends. No use pretending at all. The truth about us is fully known. It's fully revealed. We might as well admit it. We might as well own it. We might as well repent of it. We might as well let Jesus change us, purify us, refine us with his gaze. You see, the truth is Jesus watches us, not as an angry, frustrated God. You know, there you are again, Duane. No, he watches us like a mother. He watches us out of love. Um, I have a granddaughter, and she's just begun to crawl. And this means she's massively dangerous, right? (laughs) She can crawl upstairs, but she will fall down them. Uh, She can be fascinated with the fire in our family room, and if, if we don't stop her, she'll crawl right into it. I mean, that's how stupid these little creatures are. And so what does her mother do? My daughter, Morgan, is watching her like a hawk 24-7, not out of anger, not, well, if I'm honest, sometimes out of anger, sometimes out, but you know, not, it's, it's, she's watching this little daughter of hers out of love. Not to watch is not to protect. Not to watch is not to love. Not to watch is not to correct. Not to watch is not to teach. And Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees, he teaches, he purifies, he refines. And understand, John, as he's having this vision, John is being purified. John is growing spiritually. John's perspective was changing. I believe as he better understood himself and better understood his situation in light of who Jesus really is, not the Jesus that we sometimes make him to be, which is far less glorious, having far less power and exercising far less authority than he really has. That's what we do to Jesus often. And this is what Jesus is always doing. But you see, in in the vision of John's that he's having in these symbols, we actually see John changing and being transformed. Do you remember John and his brother James, the Zebedee brothers? They one time had their mom go to Jesus. You remember this? And she goes to Jesus and she says, hey, can my son sit one on your left and one on your right in your kingdom? That's what she asks. I mean, I know Jesus, you got to be number one, but could they be number two and number three? And that's the question she asks. And Jesus tells her, very interesting, he says, you do not know what you're asking. That, by the way, is the understatement of all eternity right there. You do not know what you're asking. 
<laughs> just in what we've seen so far, and we're only scratching the surface on this book, but just in what we've studied so far in the book of Revelation, can you picture with me the throne room of heaven for a moment? On the throne is the Ancient of Days, this great and glorious God and Heavenly Father. Uh, there, too, is the Holy Spirit in the form of the seven perfect spirits. And there, too, is Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain and covered in blood, the one whose eyes are like flames of fire. And then here's a little description of the throne room as well from Revelation 4. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal going out. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then right next to Jesus are two little folding chairs. <laughs> one for James and one for John. Do you see how ridiculous that is? James and John do not deserve to be there. And neither do you and I. Although we think we do. My point is the revelation of Jesus that John is receiving is a purifying clarifying vision. It helps John see himself for who he really is. John would not now be asking Jesus, hey, can me and my brother sit next to you there in the throne room? What a ridiculous question to ask. They are not worthy to be seated next to the lamb who was slain. And neither are you and I. And John is beginning to see Jesus for who he really is. He's the only one worthy to be anywhere near the ancient of days. And that clarifying vision is what we all of us need more than anything else. Clarity around these two simple things. Who am I really? Do I deserve to sit on the right or the left of Jesus in his kingdom? No, I do not. And who is Jesus really? Well, John says Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire. He says his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, or in other words, bronze glowing in the midst of a furnace. This is actually an Old Testament reference of which when we look at the book of Revelation, there are just hundreds of them actually. This is an Old Testament reference to a chapter in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, where the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has this, this dream of this mighty, powerful statue that symbolizes four kingdoms, four kingdoms that were going to unfold, that were going to come. But this statue of these earthly kingdoms, it has one very serious problem. It says that the feet of this statue are feet of iron, mixed with clay. 
In other words, there's a weakness, a very serious weakness. The foundation of these kingdoms, these four powerful, powerful kingdoms is shaky. Consequently, uh, powerful though they were, they would not be able to stand. Not forever, not for long. God would destroy those kingdoms in the vision there in Daniel, and he would establish his own, and God's kingdom would stand forever. That's the vision in Daniel chapter 2. And here John sees Jesus, the king. And Jesus has feet, not of iron mixed with clay, but of bronze. And the idea is that Jesus' kingdom, it will stand forever. It will endure forever. See, here the image of Jesus challenges us about this thing of kingdoms, our own little kingdom, which we're all building, nation kingdoms, kingdoms built by the rich and powerful among us. And the point is, any kingdom other than Jesus' kingdom is going to crumble. No matter how good it looks, no matter how powerful it seems, it will fall, but not Jesus' kingdom. That's the point. Bronze is an interesting material. You know, it's made of two metals, iron and copper. Uh, It's strong like iron, doesn't rust like iron and decay. And so in John's day, this was the premier metal. It was the strongest metal known. And the message to John and to his readers is the same as the message is to us today. This image simply says, Jesus' kingdom stands on a sure, unshakable, enduring foundation. It will not be overcome. Not ever. And friends, if you are seeking first the kingdom of God, as Jesus says we should, if you are building your life on that foundation, then you should have an unshakable courage and an unshakable peace, regardless what Patmos you might be on and what you do and what you build in Christ's name and for his honor, you can know that it will last, it will endure And so here's John. He's sitting in Patmos. And we don't know, maybe his feet are even in chains. But John is not anxious. Verse 9, we read it, says, John says that he shares three things with his brothers and sisters in these seven churches. He says they share suffering or tribulation. That's number one. They share the kingdom of Jesus. They're citizens in the kingdom of Jesus. That's number two. And then thirdly, he says, we share patient endurance. You got to ask, John, you're on Patmos. Where do you get patient endurance or peace? And the answer is simple. He gets it from knowing who Jesus really is. He gets it from knowing that Jesus is in charge His Roman jailers don't know this, but John does. Rome is not in charge. And that's part of what's implied when John says his voice was like the roar of many waters. That's the next description here. If you've ever stood on a coastline where the waves are crashing against the rocks, 
then you know that noise is so loud you can't even carry on a conversation with the person standing next to you. If you have ever paddled a canoe or a kayak through crashing white water, you can't have a conversation with someone in the front of the canoe if you're in the back. The noise is just too loud and too commanding. The roar of the waves is too all-encompassing. So when Jesus speaks, here's the thing, you have to listen. This is actually a picture of authority. Uh, some parents will encourage their kids to have two voices. You've heard of this, you know, an indoor voice and an outdoor voice. Well, the truth is Jesus has both voices. Uh, there are times when he will whisper quietly. He did with the prophet Elijah. He does that with us sometimes as he leads and guides and corrects. But at other times, here's the thing. This is the revelation. At other times, Jesus will roar. And one day Jesus will roar and everyone will hear his voice. Truth is, today we ignore his voice all the time. Every day at some point in the day, you're ignoring his voice. I'm ignoring his voice. I'm not giving him the authority, the attention, the honor, the worship he deserves. But I'm telling you, friends, the day is coming when no one will be able to ignore him. Not at all. And it's a picture of unquestionable authority. It's why earlier John identifies Jesus as the ruler of kings on the earth. That's just who he really is. And he's not just a king. He's not just a voice. He's not just an authority among many. He's not just a religious leader among many. He's the almighty. That's what Jesus calls himself in verse 8, the Almighty. Interestingly, that is exactly also what Caesar called himself, the Almighty. And as you know, many of you, Caesar demanded worship. In fact, some commentators speculate that the reason John is on the island of Patmos is precisely because he refused to worship Caesar. You see, Caesar thought he was the Almighty. And frankly, by all outward appearances, he was. But his kingdom wouldn't last. And it didn't. And John sees that now vividly in these images that reveal who Jesus really is. Jesus is the unassailable Almighty. The one who holds all power, economic political, social, spiritual power. And although we don't see it now, not clearly at least, doesn't matter. John is reminding us. Jesus is the ruler over Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, Ayatollahs, prime ministers, kings and queens. He is ruler over CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, you fill in the blank. He's ruler over all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all powers. They may not know it yet. But they will. Maybe today. Maybe tomorrow. The time is coming, friends, when every knee will bow. Even the most proud and stubborn knees. And every tongue confess, even the most proud and stubborn tongues, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is ruler of the kings on earth. He is the Almighty. Before we get too excited about that, 
that means he fully intends and will rule over you and me. And that raises some questions. Do I practice surrendering myself to the Almighty One? Do I acknowledge His authority in my life? Do I worship Him and bow before Him and give Him the honor that He deserves? Do I actually live like he is my almighty? And I'll tell you, we need to, friends. We need to. That's what he deserves. That's what we owe him. And if you want the truth, that's what we most need. Verse 16 tells us that Jesus' face was like the sun shining in full strength. Just walk outside and look directly at the sun. That's what we're talking about there. At Jesus' transfiguration, uh, we're told that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. John was there. He saw that transfiguration. Later on, he was writing a a letter to some Christians, and he said this. He said, this is the message we have heard from him, from Jesus, and proclaimed to you. It's very interesting how John uh, summarizes that message. This is what he says. He says, that God is light. You want to know? I'm going to summarize. Here's what Jesus taught me. Jesus taught me that God is light. Well, what do you mean by that, John? Well, he says, and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness John's talking about God's unblemished righteousness. That's who God is. That's who Jesus revealed God to be. Absolutely holy. Absolutely righteous. Absolutely perfect in all his parts. Think about that. In all of God's eternal existence, he's never, ever once uttered a half-truth. In all of God's eternal existence, he's never had a petty thought. He's never acted out of spite or malice. He's never been unfair. He's never been mean. He's always been perfectly just, perfectly truthful, perfectly loving, kind, and good. Absolutely unblemished perfection. And here's where all this gets very serious. Because that is not a description of us. I'm embarrassed to admit I've told half-truths. I have petty thoughts. I've acted out of spite, anger, malice. I can be unfair. I can be mean. So when I begin to see God, Jesus, for who he really is. And I begin to see myself for who I really am. Wow. That's more than a little scary. 
And truthfully, if God's holiness has no effect on you, then I would just say, humbly, I hope, you don't get this. You don't get this. That's spiritual blindness. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God in all his holiness, and then suddenly, uh, this is what always happens, we see God for who he really is, suddenly we see ourselves for who we really are. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He got it, friends. And we need to get this. You see, John has these visions of Jesus, and he tries to put them in the words. He tries to express what is almost inexpressible, right? And John is so overwhelmed with Jesus' glory and Jesus' majesty and Jesus' perfection. This is what happens to John. This is what he says. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And there's no use soft-pedaling this. John's vision of who Jesus is when he comes back, it's a fearful thing, especially if you're not following Jesus, especially if you're routinely ignoring him, especially if you're not acknowledging who exactly he really is. John says way back in verse 7 that when Jesus returns, he says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. In other words, even those who put him on the cross. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. They'll wail because they'll understand they're responsible for his death. Just like we are. Your sins and mine. It's accurate to say we pierced him. We put him on the cross. It's interesting, the last time the world saw Jesus, he was hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And interestingly, Jesus' enemies were saying, finally, we're done with this guy. Finally, he's gone. Finally, the movement is over. He's history. But John says, not so fast. He's coming back. And when he comes, it's going to be a fearful thing. Many will be wailing. But not everyone. I'll tell you, this is one of the most beautiful accounts in all of Scripture of a disciple's privileged relationship with Jesus. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. You know, the right hand is significant. The right hand is the hand that wields the sword, brings judgment, has authority. The right hand is the hand that holds the scepter, the scepter of the king, the one who's got all power and all authority. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades and Presbyterians, good ones at this point say, wow. <laughs> Do you feel that? Jesus takes his powerful right hand and touches John and says to him, fear not. 
John has every reason to fear. And so do you. And so do I. But Jesus says, fear not. There's an author named uh, Rich Mao who tells the story of an event that happened when he was just in kindergarten. It was in December and the visitor came to visit him and the other students in kindergarten. And this visitor had a big red suit and his hair was white as snow and on his feet were big black boots and his voice was like a trumpet, the sound of many waters, ho, 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 you know, kind of a thing. Uh, I'm here to see who's been naughty and who's been nice, who wants to come up here and sit on my lap. And Rich Mouse says that he and his fellow kindergartners were terrified. That's what he remembers. They were terrified. Nobody wanted to get up and go sit in this guy's lap. There was Santa standing in their midst. The glory of Santa shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And he asked, who wants to come sit on my lap? (laughs) It's like the great white throne judgment has come to kindergarten. Nobody moved, right? And Santa looked right at little Rich Mao and said, Rich, why don't you come sit in Santa's lap? And Rich is thinking, he knows my name. He's got my number. <laughs> what is this, right? What little Rich didn't know was that the man playing Santa was from Rich's church. His name was Mr. Cooper. Rich liked Mr. Cooper a lot. But Rich didn't know that Santa was Mr. Cooper. And so as he's getting up into Santa's lap, he says he was trembling with fear, trembling. And Mr. Cooper could feel that. And so Mr. Cooper, as he brought Rich up into his lap, pulled his beard down just enough for Rich to see. Just a little. And he whispered just just so Rich could hear, Rich, it's okay. Mr. Cooper, don't be afraid. So here's John, John who has seen the Son of Man, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of all the kings on earth. And John falls down at his feet as though dead for good reason. And Jesus reaches down and touches him with his right hand and says, John, don't be afraid. It's me, Jesus, the one who loves you. What a God we have. And one day, friends, the Bible says that you and I will stand before God in all his glory. And I don't know how long this will last. I don't know if it'll be instantaneous or if it'll be minutes or I I don't know. But I think we will have the same immediate response that John had. We will want to fall down before God as though dead because we know we don't deserve to be there. And I assume Jesus will reach down and perhaps he will touch us too. And he will say, Dwayne, it's okay. It's me, Jesus. Don't be afraid. (laughs) I've got the keys to death and Hades, he says. Friends, death and Hades are our two greatest enemies. They are the two things that have scared every man, woman, and child that's sober enough to think about it. I got the keys to death and Hades got them from my dad. 
And no one who follows me is going to be locked behind the doors of death in Hades. That's amazing grace. That's amazing grace. And then he says to John, John, get to work. John's 90 years old for crying out loud. John, get to work. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Uh, John is trapped on Patmos. John is oppressed by the most powerful government on earth. But God is not finished with John yet. God has important work for John to do. And friends, the same is true for you and me. It doesn't matter what island you happen to be on. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter. The Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, says, don't be afraid. I got work for you to do, purposeful, meaningful, magnificent work. I have people for you to love and churches for you to start and lost people for you to reach and bold prayers for you to pray. Don't be afraid. It's me, Jesus, and I am with you and always will be. Amen. Father, we thank you for the visions you gave John. We thank you for the life and the strength and the courage and without doubt the power that that breathed into John and the churches of Asia and God, the life that that breathes into us. We are thankful for the magnificent grace that flows from the throne because of the work of the lamb who was slain for us. God, may we live our lives seeing who you really are, seeing who we really are. And may that produce in us a love, an obedience, a growth and a change in us that gives glory and honor to Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.